0: Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the programme.
1: My two sons were born in Hollis Street Hospital in Dublin in the early 1980s. Every time we drive past this hospital, I'd say, Look, boys, that's where you two were born. Then I'd tell them of the big snow that fell in early January 1982. The weak son number one was allowed home from the hospital. He'd been born prematurely and the time had come for him to venture forth into the world after several days in an incubator. The sky over Dublin darkened as we set forth that first Thursday of the new year and I wondered, like many a first-time mother, if they were wise in letting us home with this precious bundle. At home, I grappled with my new regime of two hourly feeds and failed to notice the snow that fell all through that long first night. When dawn crept into the bedroom on the morning of the 8th of January, it held that strange light that can mean only one thing. Snow. It had snowed so much that when we opened the back door, we were met with a wall of snow so high it covered the car in the driveway. Before anything else could be done, A trench had to be dug to the coal shed. A trench, the two boys would ask. Yes, a trench. The fireplace with its back boiler was the only source of heat we had. News from RTE told us the whole country was covered in a blanket of snow six feet deep. All roads were impassable. It was no use even trying to go to work, for the trains and buses had ground to a halt. We heard that travellers had abandoned their cars in the snowstorm and kind people had opened their doors to take them in. The pubs and hotels were full of people who couldn't get home. Pregnant women were being airlifted from their homes by helicopter. The children on our street were ecstatic to hear the schools were closed and before breakfast was over, they were out with their makeshift toboggans, throwing snowballs and shrieking with delight at their freedom. Before long, the neighbouring men were out. They had formed a posse of good-humoured navvies and journeyed from house to house digging trenches. The coal sheds had to be reached by nightfall. The women also turned pioneer and made huge pots of stew to feed them with. When we heard the supermarkets had sold out of bread, we went rummaging for flour and baking powder in the back of cupboards. This siege went on for days and I've never seen people so happy. All you could hear from morning to night was the laughter of children. We clambered over garden walls with freshly baked loaves, helping out neighbours we'd only ever waved to before. We became a community without even knowing it. At night, the compacted snow turned into a skating rink when a few of the more adventurous grown-ups... Joined the children in sliding up and down the shiny surface. Through it all, my newborn baby slept and grew strong. My two boys never tired of hearing about the year of the big snow. That is, until they became teenagers. Yeah, we know, we know, they'd say as we drove past Hollis Street Hospital. That's the hospital where we were born, yeah, yeah, and it snowed so much you had to dig a trench. But I didn't care. I told the story anyway. That is, until last year, when the two of them, now grown men with lives of their own, were accompanying me on a journey across the city. Sitting in the back seat was my older son's new wife. As the car approached Tullis Street Hospital, I had a moment of maturity. Maybe it's time to let this tradition go, I thought. I won't mention the births. No, I won't. And I won't mention the big snow of 82 either. The car was now moving down the east side of Marion Square. Holler Street Hospital was right there in front of us. The time had long passed when I should have launched into my big snow story. I was feeling quite pleased with myself, if a little nostalgic, when from the back of the car came the voice of my older son. You see that big building over there, he said. His new wife dutifully peered out through the car window. That's the hospital where I was born, he said. And the night they took me home, the biggest snowfall ever to hit Ireland since 1947 started. The whole country came to a complete standstill and... The car had by now swept past Honour Street Hospital, but my son was still talking. A trench? His new wife was asking, they had to dig a trench. Ah yes, some traditions die hard.
2: I've organised celebrations of Irish literature on three continents during my 40 years in our Diplomatic Service. On such occasions, I've often chosen to read a couple of pages from the Cyclops episode of Ulysses. It has become something of a party piece of mind, if that's not an inappropriate term to use in connection with something as venerable as Joyce's great novel. For those who do not think they possess the stamina to keep pace with Ulysses, as it journeys around Dublin Bay from Sandy Cove to the Hill of Hoth, I recommend An Encounter with Cyclops, which is an enjoyable literary showpiece spiced with oodles of lively dialogue and even livelier opinions. James Joyce sure loved his lists and Ulysses is full of them. There's a veritable outbreak of list in the Cyclops episode, which is set in Barney Kiernan's pub on Little Britain Street. My favourite passage begins with a mocking description of a broad-shouldered, strong-limbed, freely freckled, shaggy-bearded, hairy-legged, sinewy-armed hero, known as a citizen. Joyce's lampoon of GAA founder Michael Cusack. It ends with Joyce's list of the ancient heroes and heroines of Ireland. This 90-strong pantheon reminds me of the liturgical litanies I recall from my time as an altar boy at Waterford's Ballybrick Church in the 1960s. The inclusion of St. Furza and St. Brendan in this motley crew reinforces my supposition. I recently had the pleasure of examining the original manuscript of Joyce's masterwork at the Rosenbach Museum in Philadelphia. I naturally looked for the Cyclops litany, only to find that Joyce's heroic crew is just nine in number. Coo Con of the Hundred Battles, nine of the nine hostages, and Brian Boru among them. The remaining names were evidently inserted at a late stage in the novel's composition. And what a gallery of luminaries those additional characters are, many of them clearly beyond the expansive reach of Irish identity. Dante, Napoleon, Lady Godiva, Buddha, Adam and Eve, and the man that broke the bank at Monte Carlo, to name but a few. Two of the names included have always tickled my fancy because of their comparative obscurity Boss Croker and Peg Woofington. Richard Croker was born in Cork in 1841 and emigrated to America as a boy. After a chequered career that included a spell as a prize fighter, he rose to be the boss of Tammany Hall, New York's bastion of machine politics that combined graft with the delivery of some progressive measures to the benefit of the less well-off sections of New York's population. Croker returned to Ireland in 1905 and purchased a large house that is now the residence of the British ambassador at Sandy Fort in Dublin. He died shortly after the publication of Ulysses in 1922 and I doubt that he was aware of his peculiar cameo in Joyce's novel. Such was Croker's prominence that his funeral was attended by Oliver St John Gogarty and the then president of Dáil Éireann, Arthur Griffith. As it happens, both Gogarty and Griffith feature in Ulysses Gogarty as the boisterous Buck Mulligan. Margaret Peg Woffington was an 18th century Dubliner who gained fame on the stage in Dublin and London where she became romantically involved with David Garrick, the leading English actor of that era. Pegg once went to Paris to hone her acting skills and returned with an Italian lover. According to her entry in the Dictionary of Irish Biography, she remained resolutely unmarried but never unattached. I often wonder how these two obscure characters entered into Joyce's thoughts. Like Joyce, Peg Wuffington left Ireland in search of fame and fortune. Although Peg died in 1760, she was the subject of a biography published in 1884, which Joyce may well have come across as a young man. Her independent streak would surely have appealed to the creator of the feisty, free-spirited Molly Bloom, for whom Peg, from what we know of her, could easily have served as a prototype. Boss Croker's inclusion has to do with horse racing, which obsesses many of the minor characters in Ulysses as they try to figure out who will win that day's Ascot Gold Cup. It was Throwaway, a rank outsider at 20 to 1. After he bowed out of New York politics, Boss Croker took to owning horses. And in 1907, his horse Orby became the first Irish-trained thoroughbred to win the Epsom Derby. This achievement was widely fated in Ireland, where it made Croker something of a national hero. James Joyce no doubt stored all this away in his magpie mind. And when Ulysses was published, Boss Croker was the only living individual to be part of Joyce's mock heroic roll call. We know from the novel that Molly and her lover, Blazes Boylan, lost money on the gold cup, while a prudent Leopold Bloom after its onerous circuit of Dublin streets, reaches the finishing post as the unprepossessing but undisputed boss of James Joyce's Ulysses. I've just got here through Paris From the sunny southern shore I to Monte Carlo went Just to raise my winter's rent Dame fortune smiled upon me as she'd never done
3: before And I've now such lots of money, I'm a gent
2: Yes, I've now such lots of money, I'm
4: a gent
5: It started when I was eight years old. Then every Christmas, or for my birthday in January, one of my relatives would give me a small hardback diary, pink or blue, with a kitten or a puppy on the cover a gold lock and two tiny keys. I thought you might like to write down your secrets the way I used to, a favorite auntie whispered. Anne Frank, another announced. Intimidated, I'd put the diary in a drawer and forget about it until that lonely moment when I'd find it again, take the small key, insert it in the lock and pick up a pen. But what was I supposed to say? My name is, I live in, today Jean and I slid on the ice. I'd write dutifully for a few days and then lose the key. Or else I'd find my little sister giggling at all the stupid things I'd written down. I didn't understand that the feverish scribbling on the backs of old copybooks or on bits of paper, the doodle hearts with boys' names in them, the notes I passed to Jean at the back of the class, the spat-out scrolls on my Latin for today. I don't give a toss about Caesar going into Gaul. But I am interested in the Sabine women. This was my secret self. And as Anne Frank once said, people can tell you to keep your mouth shut, but that doesn't stop you from having your own opinion. Then I discovered other people's diaries. Wolf, Thoreau, Nin. I called into an antique bookshop looking for more of Anais Nin's. The owner lowered his voice. I have some in the back room. When he returned, he swiped the dust off an old hardback and then carefully wrapped it in brown paper slipping it to me when the other customers weren't looking. Little Birds was the innocent title and I discovered that Nin had been writing erotica to support herself and the writers around her. She said that she suspected Pandora's box contained the mysteries of a woman's sensuality. I read Little Birds, then put it in the back of a cupboard. But what if I were to die suddenly? My family would think I was into some weird stuff. And then what about my own Pandora's box? Notebooks piled up beside and under the bed or stacked up piggledy-piggledy against walls in the study. But surely no one would be able to read those dense scrawls in blue, black, red, green and I'm sorry to report purple ink. Secret thoughts set down beside lists. Send out those invoices, submit poems, buy milk and cat food. Badly worked out income and expenditure for the month. Then quotes that interest me. For example... W. H. Auden, describing his journal as a discipline for his laziness and lack of observation. Arrows then, linking a sentence at the end of the page with one at the top. Doodles, spirals, the intimacy of page and pen more truthful and powerful than any analysis. As Freud is reported to have said, everywhere he went in the psyche, he found a poet had been there before him. The writer Melanie Ray calls her diary the gospel of grief and grace and gratitude. And in her memoir, Are You Somebody? Nulo Falein wrote that there had been no steady accumulation in her life. It was all lived in moments. In her unpublished memoir, A Sketch of the Past, Moments of Being, Virginia Woolf wrote that life cannot be written about by saying where a person came from, nor what happened to them. The truth of a person is revealed by the moments of being of that person's life. Her novel, The Waves, is inspired by one of these moments of being. Hearing this splash and seeing this light and feeling it is almost impossible that I should be here, of feeling the purest ecstasy I can conceive. Ecstasy, then. Is that the reward for this compulsion to scribble? Sometimes. But mostly these are also records of loneliness, rage, pettiness, grief gratefulness all the unlocked moments of being in a life though when I read back through the years I realise that everything changes including ourselves and that all of this scribbling bestows an undercurrent of steadiness that allows me to be present enough to notice just now the slant of gold light and coppered ferns and the joy of opening a new notebook with the date and my name written inside the cover
4: The early 70s, my parents were also in their early 70s, both contented, in good health, and living a decidedly unspectacular life. And then one morning, quite suddenly, they were both rocketed out of their chosen complacency, and into the limelight. The reason for their sudden fame, at least within our family, was that a letter had arrived from my father from the Vatican. Well, to be completely accurate. It was actually sent to our local parish priest, who kindly translated it from Latin to English, and he sent it to my father. The Latin version was on gold-headed paper with all the papal insignias that informed us that, in recognition of our father's voluntary work in our local church, His Holiness Pope Paul VI had decided to grant him the prestigious papal decoration Bene Marente. This wonderful news came completely out of the blue and caused our extended family to erupt into a frenzy of wild speculation and even wilder plans. Our mother immediately declared that she had always wanted to go to Rome and that she must now find her passport, which she hadn't used since she went to Lourdes. Her sister, our Aunt Maggie from Kilkenny, said that she would like to bring us all up medals and rosary beads for the Pope to personally bless. And my younger sister, already learning French, said she would happily switch to an Italian course to give our father some essential words in case the Pope wanted to talk to him. Meanwhile, our father calmly pleaded with us all to stop guessing and planning and just wait until he heard more details from the parish priest. And when he heard them, he began to radiate relief and joy. Nobody, the parish priest explained, was going to Rome. The presentation of the Papal Award would take place at a special ceremony in St. Joseph's Church in Glasgow, And afterwards, the parish would host a dinner in my father's honour in the now-closed Kearney Arms Hotel in Dunlary, after which there would be celebratory speeches and music and dancing until midnight. The revised plan was received stoically by the family with the exception of my mother who on hearing the word dancing immediately sensed oncoming humiliation. The problem was that she, a woman of great abilities and many talents, simply could not dance. This conviction it seemed originated in her childhood when her mother, for some reason, sent all her sisters to Irish dancing but not her. She had better things to be doing, her mother told her, which should have sounded like a compliment, but to my mother it became a lifelong belief that dancing would never be for her. And so she simply avoided it. And on many occasions in her married life, we heard of how she would have to relinquish her father, a great dancer, to various dancing partners while she sat watching, as she used to say, like a pill garlic. And now, she said, it couldn't be worse because on her father's big day she would have no choice but to stand up and dance with him and all her shortcomings would be out there for everyone to see. As grown children, we knew there was only one solution. One of us would have to teach her. She initially rejected this idea but as the day grew closer, she relented. And as my sister's absolutely refused to be her partner and as our father unhelpfully suggested that i could just both sit it out it fell to me to try and get her through the night at first i didn't know where to start and then one afternoon when i found myself alone with her i suggested that we try a few steps along the hall as it happened on the radio at that moment was a popular song called Julie Do You Love Me by White Plains which I said was a total waltz tune to start with. She reluctantly agreed and the result was not a disaster. In fact, we were both reluctant at first. I led, she followed but before long I noticed a certain casual sway that was now coming into our movements. So the following day I went out and bought the record, and thereafter, whenever I called to her, we had our secret dancing lesson, always to that song. By now her confidence had grown to the point where she began to hum the melody as we danced, and to incorporate little additional moves, as though she was now teaching me. And so on our father's great day in the Carney Arms Hotel. Our father and mother danced magnificently, all night, to every tune, provided it had the waltz rhythm of Julie, Do You Love Me? The following day, I gave the record to our mother as a souvenir of her dance success. But as the years went by, I never saw light or sight of it again until, after she sadly passed on, we found it, lying between blankets in the bottom drawer of her wardrobe. And I wondered if she had hidden it there to keep it out of sight and therefore out of mind. Or, as I now like to think, perhaps in her old age, in moments on her own, she took it out, fumbled it onto the old record player, then sat back in her chair and moved gently to the music and to all its memories.
0: The photograph is of an 80-year-old woman who has travelled from her home in Hampshire to New York City to receive an honorary doctorate from Columbia University. The year is 1932. The occasion is the centenary of the birth of Charles Dodgson, better known as Lewis Carroll, the man who wrote Alice's Adventures in Wonderland and Through the Looking Glass. The elderly woman in the photograph, sitting in an armchair, in front of an imposing mahogany bookcase, is being honoured, to quote from the citation, for awaking with her girlhood charm the ingenious fancy of a mathematician familiar with imaginary quantities, stirring him to reveal his complete understanding of the heart of a child. Her pose is conventional, the framing of the shot is standard. The occasion is not unusual, and yet there is something about it that catches the imagination and lingers. Is it the polka dot dress with narrow belt that the woman is wearing? or the way she is sitting in the armchair, with her hands clasped before her. Maybe it is her hat, with its decorative bow, or her collar necklace. No, on further consideration, it is her expression that holds the viewer's eye. A smile, yes, but so slight it is hardly there. And the eyes, wide open, gazing straight to camera, but full of something. What is it? A tinge of sadness in the midst of celebration? A weariness, perhaps, at a lifetime of being? Who? Who are you? No longer a slip of a girl, certainly. You have outgrown that. A figure to contend with now, a woman of substance. But after all these years, you still know something of photography your hands held still, since any movement might blur the lens. You have always been a willing subject. And those books on the shelves behind you, neatly arranged, they form a bower around you, framing your face, distracting from the hint of sadness in your eyes. And what a large armchair, with its winged back and curved armrests And brocade upholstery. How straight you sit in it. How straight you have sat all your life. With an invisible book on your head. Balancing it carefully. One slight stumble after all. And that book, so precariously poised. Might come down like a house of cards. Tumbling forever. A girl falling down a rabbit hole. No one wants that. All the same, it is a heavy load to bear. No wonder your hat, is that an ear protruding, is slightly akimbo. No wonder you wear a collar on your short neck. You have spent your life in a book and have been read by everyone. And yet, the question remains, who are you? And the answer remains, ah, that's the great puzzle because the woman in the photograph is Alice Liddell, later Hargreaves, the inspiration for one of the most famous characters in all of literature, Alice in Wonderland. First invented on a warm day in July in 1862, when Alice was a child, ten years old to be precise, and she and her sisters went on a picnic outing in a rowing boat with the Reverend Dodgson, who, to amuse the party, made up a story about a girl who fell into a rabbit hole and had many curious adventures. But the Alice Little in the photograph, taken 70 years later, is flesh and blood, not type print. As a young woman, she did the grand tour of Europe. Then, at 28, she married a man whose passion was cricket. Three sturdy sons followed. The two older boys were killed in the Great War. Only the youngest, named Carol, survived. Then widowhood. Plenty of silence after that. Birdsong in the morning, almost too shrill. The teaspoon shattering on the saucer at breakfast. Days measured by the ticking of broken clocks. Shadows falling on pages. Plenty of time to recall the blurred outlines of childhood memory. The boat, slipping easily through the river on a golden afternoon, light on the water, trees mutable on the bank, the timbre of a male voice telling a story, the paddling of oars, the heat of the sun overhead. But it's no use going back to yesterday, because you were a different person then, before it all began, a lifetime of being Alice, of being celebrated for your girlhood charm.
6: on a family holiday exploring the mythical places in Leitrim and Roscommon, including Rathcran, the ancient capital of Connacht, with its mounds and earthen works, souterrains, standing stones and passage graves. It was here that Maeve and Aliel gathered the men of Erin to march on Ulster and seize the brown bull of Cooley. For our youngest daughter, the Cave of the Cats, Uvnagat, was the star attraction she wanted to see this entrance to the other world the world of the she declaring if i find my way to turn an i won't ever come back and she buttoned her coat to signal her resolve in this matter i had i thought worked out the location of this portal to another realm but as we drove further and further down a narrow lane eventually running out of road i knew we were lost i got out of the car and noticed a couple standing in the front garden of a cottage, the last in a row of what appeared to be abandoned dwellings. How I had failed to see them as we drove down the lane, I will never know. I hailed them and explained what we were looking for, and the man gave me directions. Oove it turned out, lay in a field at the end of a similar lane on the far side of the main road. And then it was that I took in the circumstances of this elderly couple, the odd fact of them standing there in their hats and overcoats in the garden of their home. They stood beside a Morris mini-miner. It was packed with personal and household belongings, clothes, bed linen, crockery, pots and pans, kitchen utensils, ornaments. Ornaments. The arm of one of the windscreen wipers was broken off, the tyres were bald, and the car looked as if it had not moved in years. Yet here it was, packed to the gills in readiness for a journey. The couple explained their situation. The cottage, their home, was no longer deemed fit for human habitation by the county council. The electricity had been cut off. On this afternoon the couple... The sole remaining inhabitants of this row of houses were leaving their home for the last time. They were heading into town to a house that the council were providing. They stood in their front garden, the picture of loss and sadness, all their worldly goods, it seemed, loaded into the car. What would they have done had we not chanced down that lane? How long would they have stood there, waiting for someone to come to their assistance? The three adults in our family group and the three oldest children got behind the Mini and rolled it into the lane. And then we pushed with all our might and the old, battered car spluttered into life. And we stood and waved as they headed west towards their new life in Bala And as the car faded in the distance, I thought of the poor banished children of Eve from the prayer I had learnt as a child and some lines from Gerard Manley Hopkins. To seem the stranger lies my lot, my life among strangers. I'm sure Hopkins must have felt himself one of the banished children of Eve in the five years he spent in Dublin, the years of his dark sonnets, when he was often unhappy and lonely. Hopkins was a conscientious teacher with no talent, it seems, for teaching a patriotic Englishman in a country agitating for home rule, a loving son far removed from his parents and siblings, a poet running short on inspiration, a Catholic priest overcome by bouts of spiritual despair. Hopkins lived in what is now known as Newman House on St. Stephen's Green, Dublin, home to the splendid Museum of Literature Ireland. It is hard to imagine that the two houses which form the Catholic University of Ireland were, like the cottage in that lane in Roscommon a hundred years later, unfit for human habitation. 85 and 86 St Stephen's Green are considered two of the finest examples of Georgian architecture in the city, one of them built by George Cassells, the architect of both Powers Court House and Rusborough House. But in the 1880s, sanitation was poor, to say the least. So poor that the sickly Hopkins contracted typhoid and died within six weeks at the age of 44. On his deathbed in June 1889, he was heard to say, I am so happy. Maybe we are, like Hopkins and the elderly couple in Rathcran, all banished children of Eve existing in an ante-room, waiting for a door to open or a new year to begin, in a perfect world of health, optimism and abundance, where losses, disappointments and sorrows are left behind, so we can say, with Gerard Manley Hopkins, we are so happy. And yes, we did find Oeuvre Nagat all those years ago, but it was summer And the veil between the human world and the world of the she was not lifted that afternoon. And so our daughter came home with us and left the search for Ternanog for another day.
3: On this morning's programme we heard The Big Snow by Maeve Edwards, Boss and Peg by Daniel Mulhall, Moments of Being by Lanny O'Hanlon, Dancing with My Mother by Bernard Farrell, Photograph of Alice by Kathy Sweeney. And Rath Poor Banished Children of Eve, Gerald Manley Hopkins and the New Year by Kevin McDermott. The music was Walking in the Air, played by Emma Johnson on clarinet. The Man Who Broke the Bank at Monte Carlo, sung by Frank Dunn, accompanied by Porrick O'Quinnagon on piano. These Days by Nico. Julie, Do You Love Me by White Plains. And Snow, Prelude No. 2 by Ludovico Einaudi. Sunday Miscellany's broadcast coordinator is Carolyn Dempsey. The producer is Sarah Binci. You can find out more from this and other RTE arts and culture programmes at rte.ie forward slash culture.
0: You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.